Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Talking Europe podcast. My name is Uta Steiger, I direct the UCL European Institute, and I'm very much looking forward to today's conversation with Jeff Bowersox. In the next half hour or so, we'll find out more about black American popular entertainers who taught Central Europe around 1900, and we'll also explore how audiences and critics responded. Jeff is Associate Professor in German History in the School of European Languages, Culture and Society here at UCL. He is also Managing Editor of Black Central Europe, an impressive web resource exploring histories of blackness in the German-speaking lands from the Middle Ages to the present. Our conversation coincides with and wants to contribute to Black History Month here in the UK. In addition, it also marks the start of a new year-long project entitled Black Europe, which will involve workshops, podcasts, video profiles and a publication, and which we at the European Institute are embarking on with Jeff and other colleagues across UCL. Jeff, it's wonderful to have you on board for the project and very generous of you to join me for today's conversation. Thanks, it's lovely to be here. Jeff, let me start by asking uh, something of you. If you were asked to describe your area of academic work and interest in one sentence, albeit a sentence with a parenthesis or two or 20, as Germans in particular are rather fond of doing, what would that sentence be? I think that's probably a general academic trait um, that's you know, transnational. Um, so my my research is interested chiefly in understanding how Germans interacted with the wider world, whether that be in sort of imaginary realms or through actual physical encounters and how those interactions shaped how Germans thought about themselves. Thank you. That was actually a sentence with not that many parentheses. So uh, <laughs> can you tell us uh, where that interest originated and where it's sort of taken you so far? Um, yeah, well, it's been a little bit of a roundabout journey. Um, my my interest in Germany in sort of international, transnational contexts came from my um, master's study, actually, at the University of Cincinnati, where there wasn't even a German historian to teach me. So I was sort of um, informally supervised by a British historian named Warren mm -hmm. O'Connor, who um, was introducing us to trends within British colonial studies or the sort of colonial exchanges and how they shaped the metropole in, in Britain. And that was something that at that time, we're talking 99, 2000, um, was only just getting going, at least in the Anglophone German literature, German history literature, where... Um, disciplines like Africanistic or um, Germanistic were bringing in these sorts of cultural studies and colonial studies uh, approaches into German cultural studies and German history as well. So this is really attractive, and it opened my eyes to entirely new perspectives on German history, which I hadn't been aware of. I found very exciting. So I went from there into studying German colonial culture, which I did as my PhD dissertation and eventually book, looking at how German young people in the Kaiserreich, so late 19th, early 20th century, how they encountered the colonial world in a variety of different media that were aimed at young people, like uh, toys and games and youth literature and educational materials and um, youth movements like the Pfadfinder, the German Boy Scouts. Mm -hmm. And that was Germany looking out at the world. And that's led me from there to look at what happens when people who are from outside Germany, out in the wider world, come to Germany, and then how that interaction then shapes Germans' perceptions. 
Yes, right, because that that is now what your current project is on, isn't it? It's on that's right. Really, African and African American entertainers in Germany around the nineteen hundred mark. Um, yeah, and that's what we're wanting to explore a little bit further now because it's interesting in in the sense to which it is quite intentionally prior to the really the high modernist forms of American entertainment, such as mm-hmm. particularly jazz, which we're also familiar with, which rose to mm-hmm. prominence slightly later in the twenties and thirties. And which, of course, has received a rather lot of scholarly and popular attention. But yeah. you, in your recent work that I've read, you, you focus on a very different forms of popular entertainment, which specifically African-American performers brought to pre-war Europe. Um, and I just wondered if you could tell us a little more about what these forms of black music and dance were, how we can understand them. Sure. Um, there's a diverse range of different forms of um song and dance associated with African-Americans, and in that sense understood as Black cultural forms. Um, And in many ways, these are predecessors to those forms that are more familiar from the jazz age, like jazz, like the Charleston. Um, But they're different. They're, they're in one sense, popular forms. So forms like the ragtime era. Um, Think of, you know, Scott Joplin and and his sort of rags. Um, And the various sorts of... um, popular dance forms to go along with those, which could be very comic in a minstrel vein. So in, in the form of black minstrels doing comedy drawn out of the whites in blackface minstrel tradition, um, but also in innovative and increasingly refined sorts of dances drawn out of popular trends. So dances like the cakewalk, which became a huge sensation across Europe around about 1900 and so, and was the forebear for a series of successive dance trends um, like the with, with um, some simple names, the one step, the two step, others with more entertaining names like the turkey trot or the grizzly bear, um, which mm-hmm. fed into mostly middle class um, popular dance trends that were mm-hmm. uh, common in music halls and dance halls, and then also came to define what, um, say, dance instructors or entertainers would try to create as a as a refined form of art dance. Um, so, on the one hand, those popular forms. And then on the other hand, there's something that was seen as more um, authentic and uh, sort of respectable in an art music vein. And those are the so-called spirituals, choral music, which was understood as something that came out of African-American folk uh, musical forms derived on plantations in the U.S. South that were then refined. um, in, In actual practice, they were refined and constructed and created as highly sophisticated art music, choral art music, um, with all sorts of really sophisticated harmonies and uh, rhythm patterns and very highly skilled singing methods involved. Um, These forms were also taken on in the German lands and across Europe as a form of black music that could be engaged with, enjoyed um, as an audience member, um, appreciated as a sort of spiritual endeavor as well, because these were often religiously informed. And then also for amateur choirs, they could actually perform them because the music was then sold, in part to raise money for universities and other endeavors in the U.S. Um, and then amateur choirs could then themselves sing these spirituals and in some way engage with Black culture in that way, Black American culture. And that's a, it's a fascinating history because obviously we we are still quite, um, I think, aware today of many of the legacies of those um, uh, sort of forms that really reached uh, Germany or Europe um, around that time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm interested um, to pursue this with uh, slightly more detail in one of your historical case studies, uh, which is William Foote's Afro-American Company. Mm-hmm. I understand he founded the company around 1891, and it comprised around 40 African-American entertainers and covered quite a significant range of the sort of art forms and music forms and dance forms that you've just outlined. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about why Foote decided to tour the company through Europe and Mm -hmm. what his motives and also his aims and objectives were for it? Well, William Foote's an interesting character because by this time, by 1891, he had a long career in minstrelsy, um, both uh, blackface minstrelsy, that is whites in blackface, and also black minstrelsy in the U.S. Um, and his perspective on the genre, on the ver- on the entertainment form of minstrelsy, was that it had been degraded over the course of his career by it becoming less less um, authentic to the original black folk forms on which it was supposed to be based. Um, more turned toward uh, the burlesque, more turned toward um, simply sensational forms. Of um, of dance that were not about anything true, but rather were about just getting a laugh um, or just doing something sensational and, and um, acrobatic. Whereas he felt minstrelsy was supposed to be something that conveyed an authentic sense. It was supposed to be an authentic conveyance of Black American folk culture, but done in an entertaining form and thus an educational experience as much as it is an entertainment experience. So what he wanted to do was to use um, a black minstrel troupe to revive the entire genre in a sense. And he wanted to gather um, dozens of highly skilled black performers that covered the entire range of black American performance of song and dance that included, as you said, the sort of minstrel stage shows, as well as the sort of more presumed serious spiritual singing, and then connecting it to modern art music and popular forms that were common across the US and Europe. And then to take that troupe construct a narrative around these different um, songs and sketches that was about the uplift, the civilization, the aspiring toward full civilization of African-Americans coming out of the post-Civil War period, which is only 30 years, you know, 20, 20, 30 30 years before at this point. So to use these entertainment forms to revive the genre of minstrelsy, but put it to the service of a narrative that said African-Americans have achieved full citizenship and have proved their value and their belonging to the same civilization that Americans, Europeans claim to share. And he wanted to take that troop with that narrative and then travel in Germany so that he could then come back to the U.S. for the 1893 Chicago World's Fair and then make a big splash with the success of this show. Great. Um, That's a, it's a fascinating account. And, um, because I suppose it is one of the not certainly not the first companies to tour um, uh, Europe from the U.S., but but certainly one that constructs such a such an ambitious narrative mm-hmm. around it. Um, I want to to pick up on two of the keywords that you've mentioned. One is authenticity, which you refer mm-hmm. to a number of times, and also the idea of civilization, of of, of progress, of cultural progress. Mm-hmm. You know, quite loaded um, terms, of course, but I'm interested in the sort of, say, conceptual context in which these were developed. What were the prevalent ideas, certainly in Europe, um, around folk culture versus popular culture at the time? And also, how were they linked respectively to, to the very notions and ideas of modernity, of what makes um, us modern? 
and, and indeed the nation itself. Mm. So I think this is the thing that I find most interesting about these performers and how they engage with German audiences and how commentators, German and Austrian commentators respond to them. Because um, these ideas about how folk culture produces the nation or how it produces high civilization, high culture or modern civilization, these are ideas that come from earlier in the 19th century, in the late 18th century. And they're a context that we don't generally get when we think of, when when we look at the jazz age, for example, which is understood as you said, sort of high modernist. Um, whereas when German commentators are responding to these performers, and in fact, when William Foote is putting these performing troops together, and when the performers are putting their shows together, they're working with this earlier tradition, um, these earlier sets of ideas about what constitutes modernity, and it works basically like this: for cultural commentators, a modern national culture which is the, understood to be the essence of high culture, the essence of civilization, is only possible if it's built on a pre-existing and in some sense eternal, like a timeless, sort of unchanging folk culture that's understood to be rooted in a place and distinctive because it's rooted in a place. It's meant to be with common folk, understood generally as sort of rural folk, um, and in some sense emotional, and raw and inspired as opposed to constructed or composed and somehow connected to local patterns of life and rhythms and relations that then take on some form of musical expression or physical expression in the form of a dance. And the sort of theory through the 19th century, which is um, conveyed most popularly by um, Herder, the German philosopher and, and, and cultural critic Herder, uh, but he doesn't create it, but he popularizes it, um, is this idea that if you have a folk culture, that makes it possible to have a national refined culture. And it's the task of the, the modern composer, the cultured critic, um, and the cultured audience member to understand how to refine those raw forms, to take out the excess, to take out the unrespectable, and to find that authentic truth, the distinctive truth that makes, say, the Tyrol different from Scotland, different from you know, Normandy. And to then take those bits and create something beautiful out of it. And in doing so, create something of universal value that then can be appropriated and enjoyed by people from other parts of the world who presumably also have their own distinctive folk culture to share that they've refined and turned into a national form. And that this is how cultural progress and civilization works in a, in a musical dance form. Foote's working with this too. And African-American entertainers and composers in the late 19th century are working with the same idea. And they see in this a way to develop an argument that African-American culture, defined as the product of a folk site, it's the U.S. South, say, the plantation, inspired by roots that come across the Atlantic from various parts of West Africa, are then created, given a sort of specific meaning in the U.S. South. And now, that is the late 19th century, are being refined by skilled composers, even if they're on a popular stage, into a form that can then be appreciated as universal. And thus, not just as a uh, sort of primitive product from some distant place understood as racially other, but rather as a contribution, a, sort of a product of and a contribution to civilization understood in this case as sort of Euro-American and implicitly white. 
And the conflict comes, the, the sort of confusion comes out of this. It's when these performers and Foot, who's sort of getting the funding for it and framing the, the, the entertainment, when they come to um, perform before white audiences in Germany, the confusion comes because commentators know that idea of how folk culture moves from primitive to modern and refined and civilized. And that makes sense to them. And they do talk about these entertainments in that language. But that is confused by the fact that they also know, quote unquote, know that racialized others are somehow backward and not as capable of achieving civilization, that they're primitive in some way. So these two different things that they know, these two regular discourses that they operate within, come into conflict. And this forces them, as they're, enter- as they're enjoying the shows, to try to get this cognitive dissonance under control. And they do all sorts of mental gymnastics to show, to try to make sense of it. And in the process, show us where those tensions lie with these entertainments. Uh, it's fascinating, really. I'm going to ask you a little bit um, to expand on the um, on the sort of representation in the media, on the kind of the, mm-hmm. the, the critical response that that you are able to to, to dig up um, that sort of shows this ambivalence um, in the audience's response. But um, I also wanted to ask you at the same time about the notion of popular culture of commercializing mm-hmm. culture yeah. that kind of emerges at the same time and sort of disrupts also this idea of um, folk culture as that sort of display of, of authenticity, that kind of pool for possible nation building as you've just outlined it. Yeah. And this is the other, I think the other important trend from the 19th century that helps us understand why these entertainers and notions of race more generally become um, useful things to argue about when they're not actually talking about race per se, but about these broader tensions. Because over the course of the 19th century, because of economic changes and other sorts of sort of social change with migration and technology, um, makes for the production of these networks across Europe and America for venues for commercial entertainment stages. Um, There's more disposable income for people to go see these shows. Um, And you, you get the development of what we understand by the late 19th century as the commercial entertainment industry. And what commentators get concerned about, especially um, sort of middle-class cultural commentators who have assumed that they're the cultural gatekeepers for what counts as culture, um, is this, it's more radically open to audiences who just can get in if they pay. You don't have to have any sort of um, refined understanding necessarily to either attend or to perform. And you don't have to necessarily be doing something truthful because whether you make money is the defining characteristic of whether it continues. So for a lot of cultural commentators, what they're interested in seeing is the is noble, respectable music built on folk forms that can then be understood as authentic because they're based on these forms and ennobling because they are refined and thus produce a more cultivated educational and entertainment experience. This is the essence of, a little bit caricatured, but the essence of the sort of the respectable bourgeois way of enjoying popular entertainment. Whereas what many critics are upset by is that so much entertainment doesn't do that, or does it in ways that don't conform to their ideas of what counts as respectable or authentic. And so when you have popular entertainers who are comedians doing very silly bits or when they become more risque, or when the popular forms that are being presented don't follow the often sort of rigid notions of what counts as actual folk culture. 
um, but take on new and exciting forms, like say you know um, popular forms of uh, new dance and music that take on new rhythms and, and and movements and shapes. Then these commentators begin arguing arguing about whether they're authentic and whether it matters if they're authentic. And that's all cut across by this idea that if entertainment is defined by um, money, if it's defined by who can pay for it and the profit, as opposed to these higher ideals, then for many critics, that's a problem. And for many critics, it threatens their position as their presumed position as cultural gatekeepers. And it also opens up ways for um, for people to convey things they see as unacceptable entertainments and even degrading entertainments that can have a negative effect on audiences. That's still a discourse we still t- we see today um, with people um, debating what counts as good or bad entertainment for adults and children alike. Um, but the, these discourses then also then work to shape how German commentators respond to the black entertainers, mm-hmm. because to the extent that they are conveying that authentic notion of culture, it's easy to say, yes, that is respectable. We can learn from that. We can be inspired by it. But even then, those forms are commercially shaped. They are the product of, often the product of white composers or of black composers producing for the music market. And commentators know that too. And that's even for the most noble of those forms, the most noble and authentic, stereotypically, the spirituals. That's also especially true for the minstrel shows, which are much more interested in playing with the audience and playing with notions, stable notions of identity and playing with stable notions of what counts as respectable and are more enjoyed by the audiences as a consequence of that, which then troubles commentators and inspires other commentators to see that as a liberating thing of modern culture. And so they debate those different those different subject positions, the commentators who want to defend tradition and authenticity, and those other commentators who say authenticity isn't the point. It's about breaking boundaries. It's about fragmenting um, senses of identities and so on, and, and embracing difference and embracing the not respectable in order to better understand the dislocations of the modern age. But um, what happens um, in that context um, with those much more poignant or, let's say, difficult cases? For example, those of the really racialized comedy of blackface minstrelsy, because we've mm-hmm. had those um, companies touring, touring um, the German-speaking lands at the, around the same time. And of course, there are those who argue, um, and you outline that, that very well, um, just how this... Um, racially degrading form of entertainment never quite caught on in German-speaking countries over the long 19th century, Um, or others saying that there was actually something even of an ideological resistance to it. But uh, you try to tell a different story in your work. Um, Can you Mm -hmm. you sort of shed a bit of light on that particular uh, difficult um, case here? Yeah, I mean, the general story about blackface in the German lands is that, as you said, it, it didn't catch on. Germans weren't that interested in it. And there are all sorts of, even urban legends about this, about Germans being outraged by being deceived and chasing performers from the stage and so on. Um, but so I was actually quite surprised to discover that American and British blackface entertainers were relatively popular, understood as a foreign entertainment form, but still relatively popular. Um, across the German lands, um, especially from sort of the eighteen, uh, from the late eighteen sixties onwards, up th- past the turn of the century, um, and that Germans got a, di- a variety of different sorts of enjoyment from these forms, which 
are in some sense, to a significant extent, based on demeaning caricatures of blackness, no doubt, but which also are about a, depending on the entertainer, sincere effort to convey something of the authentic um, way of engaging with cultural products, um, which can be, some scholars have described as a form of um, love and theft, right? It, it, it's an appropriation, um, but it's an, an, an unjust one, but also is nevertheless based in some notion of um, appreciation and enjoyment that doesn't have to just be insincere and exploitative, even if it often, often was. And so Germans, when they're encountering blackface entertainers, they are getting something that they understand to be authentic. And this then provokes debates about setting aside the caricature part for a moment, provokes debates about whether Germans should be interested in these black folk forms or whether that itself is somehow um, degrading because of the blackness associated with them or whether it's better because it's another form of folk that is entirely new and thus more to be appreciated because of this. But then if you put along with that the caricatured forms that go along with the racialized entertainments, the, the exaggerations and the buffoonery, um, that are all then associated with it, that creates a different form of enjoyment, which is more readily associated with those racialized stereotypes of black inferiority that are associated with uh, colonial discourses that were also quite common at the time in the late 19th century. And so go along with a persistent strain of anti-black racism, which was commonly expressed within discourses about Africa and also about the United States. Um, and the Germans and Austrians came to enjoy these forms for both of these reasons, it became a way to articulate forms of anti-Black racism that were very flattering to the Germans and the Austrians, but also did give access to something that was enjoyable and new and that some found real liberation and meaning in, even if they didn't understand it fully. And in that sense, it prepared the way for Black entertainers because that proved there was a market. It proved that Germans and Austrians were interested in learning more and seeing more of actual black entertainers, which then when black entertainers show up and present something that's, it kind of rhymes, right, with minstrelsy, but it's different. And it's in many ways more explicitly, also implicitly political in the subject position they're presenting to entertain to audiences. Um, and it's in part for those reasons that blackface sort of tails off in, in popularity. But what's curious about that is even at the same time as American and British blackface entertainers are finding it, white American and blackface uh, entertainers are finding it harder to get a purchase in the German market. At the same time, Germans are doing more blackface themselves as one-off bits, as parts of another act. Um, and they're incorporating blackface into their own routines. And they're also, even if they're not dedicated blackface artists, and they're also Germanizing the representations of blackness, so that it's not just an African-American reference point. It might be a Cameroonian reference point instead as a way to talk about the tensions produced by colonial encounters or to talk about the tensions produced by, um, by colonial encounters overseas and by those same encounters at home when white Germans are encountering, say, black, black men who are performers um, or talking about the sort of um, the sort of sexual politics of, of race and gender in public spaces, then black, a sort of Germanized version of black space becomes a useful tool for doing that. Even if it's never as popular as in the US or in Britain, still Germans and Austrians, are, they know it, 
they enjoy it, and they are also happy to embody it. That's really interesting and leads me um, quite neatly onto what would actually be sort of my my final question to you. And it's a question that tries to zoom out a little bit from the um, the conversations that we've that we had so far, and to think about how the um, the ambivalent responses to African American entertainments, as you've um, described them um, during our conversation, um, well, how they um, might um, link to the idea of early globalization um, of, of transnational sort of connections that are emerging and mm-hmm. and um, and bringing a very very new kind of understanding uh, to to Europe as well so how does all of this um, shape perhaps the way that Germans saw themselves um, mm. and at a time that really must have been perceived as a rapidly and very radically changing global order which it absolutely was. Um, the sort of encounter and mobility and conflict associated with all this was unprecedented, and contemporaries understood it in that way. And I think as they talked about those encounters more generally, in those conversations, they produce the ideas of race that are then attached to ideas of Germanness. Yeah. But this is an unstable thing, and it requires constant work, negotiation, and reinforcement. And so where I see these performers and their engagement with audiences and commentators working you know, playing one, it's one site for that, the production of that conversation and how that then gets negotiated in a sort of dialectical relationship. So performers show up, um, they present an argument that confounds the expectation that black simply means primitive, that black can also be modern, that Americans can also be modern and cultured, and that this is somehow different from what they expect already because of colonial discourses. And audiences love that they're confused by it. Um, And commentators observing all of this have to explain those facts. They have to resolve the cognitive dissonance, which they can't do because they're inherently contradictory. And they have to explain whether this is a good thing or not. And in the process of doing that, they either try to demean what they see outright through a sort of racialized lens that says, you know, these people and their entertainments are just sort of bad. That happens a little bit. Some of them say this is fantastic, even if they are in some sense primitive. That happens a little bit. But mostly it's in the middle where they try to play with the tensions between these. And as they see the audiences enjoying this, something that's a good thing. But what I think is the most interesting part is those commentators who see audience and audience enjoyment as a negative thing or try to explain that in a way that protects notions of race and culture that are unstable. And I think in those efforts to in those efforts to to, to explain away the tension we can see the possibility of something other than just degradation, other than just demeaning sort of stereotypical enjoyment. Because I think when audiences when the when audiences sing spirituals when they go to a dance hall and they dance the cakewalk, um, when they enjoy a, a, a black comic, it's possible they're doing that just for stereotypical reasons that flatter themselves, that is about exoticization and reinforcement of colonial notions. But there's also, I think, a potential for a more universal understanding of humanity and a connection across those racial boundaries, those presumed racial boundaries, which is hard to prove. But if you look at critics who are upset about that, you can see the evidence for this. They're scared about that universal connection. They're scared about transcending those racialized lines. And so when they say that 
um, a particular dance, when they say the cakewalk um, is actually somehow degraded. And so we have to find the parts that we don't like, the unrespectable parts, define those as the black parts, take the rest of it and say that's respectable. And that's not that's not black. They're constructing an idea of difference that was unstable and they're trying to reinforce it. And they're trying to impose that on audiences who just want to do the dance and who want to connect with the performers who are doing it and might make a connection across racial lines when they do. And those sorts of processes, whether it be satirical commentary or other sorts of appropriation or outright rejection, those those different defensive mechanisms, those maneuvers, the efforts to build a wall, tell us that this extraordinary era of mobility and encounter had the potential to offer something different, connections to make even new, potentially new political alliances, even if the potential for that's not as understood as we'd like it to have been perhaps in the time. And I think that that encounter, that dialectical process, is how ideas of race were constructed and popularized around the turn of the 20th century. And that's a thing that we need to be able to explain because they weren't there in the same way 100 years before, and we take them for granted in ways in the present day. But around 1900 is when these ideas are being constructed and the process of mobility helps us, the, 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 that sort of experience of mobility helps us explain how that came to be and why. Jeff, thank you so much for this fascinating account. I couldn't imagine a better way to kick off the academic year in style or indeed our new Black Europe project, which you're so closely involved with. For our listeners, we hope you may follow us as we embark on a whole range of related conversations with many colleagues from UCL and beyond, across a range of departments, disciplines, and areas of interest. Until then, Jeff, thank you very much for your insights today, and thanks to everyone else for listening. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure.